0: For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you and with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we do want you to follow along. There are pew Bibles and we have a number of guests with us. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Follow along in the pew Bible and there's the page, 1014. And the reason that this is important is because a lot of times we assume We know a lot about the Bible until we actually read the Bible, so it's important that we read and we follow along, and for those of you, obviously, that are here, perhaps for the first time, we preach and we teach expositionally. Big word. What does it mean? It means that we take a book, and we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we go to the end of the book, and that's where we are now in 1 Peter. We started a number of weeks ago in chapter 1. We are going to pick up this morning... Uh, primarily with verse 18, but there's some introduction that goes into that. So keep that in mind. The Lord has given us grace to be here 27 years, and over that time we have preached through a number of different uh, uh, books, studied a number on Sunday evening, and it's always important to (laughs) go to the Word and see exactly what the Word said and not what our grandmas and our grandpas taught us. And we're going to talk about tradition this morning. I want to pick up with verse 13. By the way, I assume that Gordon and Debbie are joining with us. We, our prayers go out to your brother and uh, also to Debbie uh, and many others, Rebecca and uh, her, did I say boyfriend? What do I say? Friend. Friend that is a boy. All right. We hope that you feel better. Peter, writing to scattered people in the Roman Empire, and he says this, to pilgrims in the Roman Empire, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless uh, conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to his throne of grace in a brief prayer. Father, what we know not teach us this morning, because we are an ignorant people, What we have not, give us because we are needy people. And then, Father, because we are not like your Son, we pray that you would make us like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, we started uh, the first uh, chapter, verses 1 through 12, and focused on hope in the gospel. We are now looking from verses 13 through verse 3 of chapter 2, at holiness in the gospel. One of the attributes of the gospel in our lives, the good news of Jesus Christ, is it should motivate us to live holy lives. And we started to look at uh, a number of passages of Scripture last week talking about holiness. So, if you would, brother, put up the first slide. This is where we left off last week. Now, Peter has written, he's quoting the book of Leviticus, verse 16, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And I reminded you that as believers, we are to strive for the holiness, as the Bible teaches us, without which no one will see the Lord. We don't live self-righteous or unholy lives and expect to see the Lord. And we'll talk about works we'll talk about grace as we move through the message this morning now there's a special fear god is other we talked about that a number of times but i want you to this is sort of a review for some of you that were here but this will help you understand what peter is teaching there's a special fear of otherness and that's called xenophobia it's a big word but it simply means the fear or hatred of strangers or foreigners or anything related And I mentioned to you last Sunday morning that each one of us are xenophobes to a certain extent. Uh, We are in the South, most of us in the South. We have some friends that are from New York State this morning. Perhaps some of you are from the nether regions north of the Mason-Dixon line. And for years, in fact, there was so much of a fear many, many years ago that there was a civil war fought in this country. If we travel to large cities in the United States, we may be uh, brought uh, to, uh, into proximity of individuals that are from other countries, and not necessarily from English-speaking countries, from countries that, uh, that we have a fear of. Now, God is the one that we most fear. Every person, every sinner is a xenophobe when it comes to God. We fear him. Sometimes we fear him rightly. Verse 17 talks about that. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we assume that we are very, very powerful and say, I have no fear of God, which is a fool's errand. You don't know God. and You certainly don't know the God of the Bible if that's what you're thinking. God is the ultimate stranger. He is alien. He is foreign, and primarily all of that is because he is holy, and we know that we're not. We know something of the concept of holiness. We may not know all the biblical uh, concepts of holiness, but we do know that God is more holy than we are. Because God is holy, our fear, verse 17, and you call on on the Father who without partiality Judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Because God is holy, our fear is not the healthy fear that Peter is talking about here. Sometimes, and rightfully so, if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, you may have a dread of God. And I would assure you that dread is well-founded based on the word of God. If you don't know Jesus, you should dread God because he will be, and verse 17 says, an impartial judge. We dread God because God is, after all, too great and too awesome for us. Our phobia, then, of God is due to sin. God's will and his way especially as we look at the Word of God, are too difficult for us. God threatens our security, and he should. God is dangerous, C.S. Lewis said. He threatens our security. He threatens our comfort. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the last verse in chapter 5 of Matthew says, Therefore, be holy as my Father In heaven is holy. In fact, the word he uses is perfect. Be mature. Be without any malady. Without any stain. And of course, we know we can't be that way. Yes, God is other. But he is also compassionate. He is also merciful and he is gracious. And Psalm 103 verse 14 says, He knows our frame. He knows our build. He knows us from the tippy-top of our gray heads, in my case, the white head, to the bottom of my calloused feet. And he remembers that we're dust. And then in verse 18, Peter says, we should long to be holy because Jesus is our Redeemer. Is he your Redeemer this morning? Is he the one that has redeemed you? Have you been brought full force before the triune God, with the knowledge of your sin and called out to Jesus in faith to save you. Next slide, if you would, brother. About 200 years ago, a man uh, by the name, theologian by the name of Charles Cranfield, C.E.B. Cranfield, wrote this. It is of God's infinite condescension, condescension that you are allowed to call him Father. You are not to presume on his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble. He has not ceased to be the impartial judge of men, and that's a key. We'll talk about that as we move through the passage. The more truly, the more intimately we know him, the more of awe and reverence we shall feel. I pray, many of our men, ladies, when they pray, They began, Our Father, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, that is in heaven. Do we presume upon the name of God the Father? Sometimes we do. Now, the Bible speaks and teaches that we're justified by faith. In other words, we are made right before God. The word justified, a simple definition of it would be that uh, Jesus... Through the Spirit of God imparts His gracious love, mercy, and grace to us, His forgiveness, so that we stand before His Father just as if we had not sinned. Now, there's a lot more to it. It's actually a a, um, um, a term that is used, a judicial term that is used, but we are justified by faith. So, the works. Are a result of that. I talked about that this morning when we were baptizing Reagan. We are rewarded according to our works, and Peter talks about it in this particular passage of Scripture. Now, the fear that Peter is talking about here in verse 17 is not the servile fear, it's not the fear that a prisoner has of his tormentors, but it's the filial, it's the familial fear, it's the fear that a child has for his mom and dad because they respect their mom and dad. Now, to be sure, God is not our moms and dads. He's not our grandmoms. He's not our grandpops. He's other. And the fact that he is other is the reason that Jesus became incarnate in the flesh, so that his otherness could be moved to those who are not like God. Sometimes with parents, children should. They should fear to offend their parents, to disappoint or to misrepresent. And so Peter is talking here in verse 17 about a fear born in the reverence of a spirit of adoration. Do you adore God? Now, there's a difference between love and adoration. So when we say we love God, then the question would follow, do we adore him? Is it evident in our life? Alistair Begg, a great preacher from Scotland. He pastors now in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. But he said this in a message I was listening to a couple of weeks ago. He said, God sees the invisible, and he hears the inaudible. He sees the invisible. He sees your heart, your mind, and he hears what you're thinking. He hears what I think. God has telescopic sight, if you please. Uh, NASA just launched a few weeks ago uh, the James Webb Telescope, and it has now revealed many, many fascinating photographs of our universe, even more so than the Hubble Telescope. It peers into, according to the astronomers, it peers into almost that point in time when God spoke the universe into existence. Well, he has telescopic sight, and he has stethoscopic hearing. A few weeks ago, uh, I had been in and out of the, uh, the heat. I was working on a uh, refrigerator, trying to get a light to work. And so I, rather than move the refrigerator, which is huge... Uh, and I'm an old guy now and I try to do things as simply as I possibly can. I went up and downstairs into the garage, went outside and around to turn off the breaker, turn the breaker back on. I don't know where sorry was at that particular time. I probably could have called him and used him to do that. Because that's it's a good thing to do. But anyway, I didn't. And so later on that afternoon, I walked down to get the mail, walked back up. My driveway is a couple of hundred feet if longer if not longer and when I walked in through the back door uh, I had a severe dizzy spell so I'm grabbing on to things to keep from falling I sat down and Robbie was not there she was getting one of the many things done that ladies get done Um, and I don't recall whether it was her manicure or pedicure but anyway she was not there and she had left her phone at home I think she planned it. What do you think? <laughs> she didn't. So I sat down, and of course, I, I know Craig was home, and I think Megan was home at the time. I didn't call him because I'm an old guy, and I do stupid things, and I'm a man. All God's women said, yes. You know that. I went to the doctor the next week because I had a scheduled uh, appointment for my uh, physical, my annual physical. So I told him about it. And he said, well, we're going to check out your heart, your lungs, and so forth. And make sure that nothing is going on with your heart. My, both of my brothers have had heart attacks. Thankfully, I haven't been down that road at least as yet. Hope I don't. So what did he do? He pulled out a stethoscope. And he's listening to my heart all around my heart. He spent a great deal of time, which I was grateful. Well, God doesn't need a stethoscope. We have to have telescopes to look into worlds beyond, and we have to have stethoscopes to listen to things that are unseen. But Begg's right. God sees the invisible, and he hears the inaudible. Next slide. Now, Peter is not teaching. Neither did Paul, and you can't find it in the Bible, so don't think, well, he's teaching about works. No, he's not. If, remember, now context is king, and uh, for thousands of years we have known that salvation is solely by faith alone, by grace alone, through the Word of God alone, in the person of Jesus alone. But we do know that individuals that are born again do produce spiritual work. And so these works reflect the principle that our hearts have committed to Jesus Christ. Talked about this with Reagan this morning. Each one of you here, I hope and pray that each one of you has at some point in time come to know Jesus as Savior. And again, I encourage you, if not, then this would be the day. This should be the day for you. However... If you are basing your salvation on something that you did many, many, many years ago and there are no spiritual works. And by the way, one of those spiritual works is being in the house of God on his day. And yes, we will be judged if we forsake the church of the living God. None of us alone wolves. Genuine faith shows itself in words and deeds. In verse 17, he uses that phrase without partiality. It's the only time the phrase is ever used in the Bible to define God's judgment. That God's judgment is without partiality. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We preached through Luke a number of years ago. It was a great study for us. Verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, so he's always teaching his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, if you know about the Pharisees, they were the most self-righteous. In fact, they were the most tradition-oriented sect in Judaism during Christ's time. So Jesus begins by saying, hey, Pharisees are hypocrites. Well, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Again, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, here is the summary. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those that kill the body. But we do, we are. And Jesus said, and after that, they have no more that they can do. You die once, basically, is what Jesus is saying. And this is a reference in a roundabout way to his crucifixion. Jesus would be put to death physically. So he knew who he'd lay in store for. Verse 5, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, and you will notice in your translations that the word him has a capital H, so that's A reference to his father. Fear him. Who, he says, after he has killed. Well, God wouldn't kill anyone. Well, that's not exactly what it says, is it? After he, capital H, has killed, has power to cast into hell. And he reiterates it again. I say to you, second time, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. I say to you, the second time, fear him. Talked about xenophobia, didn't we not? And this is one of the reasons that people should fear God. Now, Peter, in this passage, go back now to 1 Peter. In this passage, he has said, first of all, fix your hope on grace. Notice verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to fix our hope on grace. Secondly, he says, in verse 16, you to be holy. These are commands. These are not options. You don't get to check a box. Sorry, he was talking about checking boxes this week. We don't get to check boxes. we will to be holy. And then thirdly, he says, live your life, and that's verse 17, live your life in honor to God. You are to reverence him. The psalmist would put it this way. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Probably this morning some of us have at least an idea, some concept of God. But we don't know Him in His entirety, and I don't think we ever will. God's knowledge and His wisdom are infinite. And one of the reasons that we pass from this life into the life that is to come as believers, or so that we may learn of him forever. We will never be bored in heaven. Anybody that thinks that doesn't know the Bible. Plain and simple. Next slide, if you would, brother. So we have this obligation to our great God to live before him in hope. To live before him in holiness and to live before him in honor. So when we call out to God, and Paul said we could call out to God as a, as a papa, abba father. That's the Greek term for papa, for daddy. So often we want to cry out to God in this fashion, but we, we forget the one to whom we intimately call out to And one of the things that we forget is that he is our impartial judge. And yes, this goes for believers. He's writing to believers. So yes, he's going to judge believers. The book of Hebrews would teach us that every son he loves, he chastens. That's me. And I have been through many, many chastenings in my Christian walk. So, my question to you is this morning if you have professed Jesus Christ as your Savior, have you been through chastening? God's chastening, not parents chastening, not boss chastening, not wife chastening, not husband chastening. God's chastening. So, we've looked at uh, three reasons for believers' holiness. But there's a fourth one, and that's found in verse 18. First of all, the God who has called us is holy, we know that. Secondly, God the Father is still God our judge. Thirdly, we are to continue in holiness until we die. Until we die, not when we get tired of it. Until we die. And then fourthly, Christ came to redeem us from our former lifestyle. Verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. And he talks about silver and gold earlier in the passage. He mentions it again. Corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we looked at three words. In fact, we'll we'll review these again as we go through this passage. But... The word that we want to focus on here in verse 17 and 18, and actually we could add verse 19, is the word redeemed. And it means, biblically, to be set free by a ransom that has been paid. And Paul, and excuse me, Peter says you are to conduct yourself, you are to live your life in a certain way because you've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. He is your Lord. Lord. He's not your, bro, uh, your, your buddy. He's not the big guy in the sky. He is your Lord. And therefore, you to live and conduct your life in a certain way because you've been ransomed. Our behavior as a believer is owed to the one who paid the price to set you free. So the, the, the point is, is your life consistent with what Peter is teaching and how you live now. Is there consistency in the fact that you tell people that you know Jesus as Savior, yet there's inconsistency in your lifestyle? Now, to be sure, again, all of us have inconsistencies. That's the reason that we go before him, ask for forgiveness. And John writes in 1 John, he says he is faithful and he is just. He does the judicial thing. He forgives us of our sin. Now, when we think of the word ransom, we often think of uh, someone that's been kidnapped or some, uh, some wealth or something that may be held until an individual extorts for money. Being a good Americans, we like to think about money. So someone that has extorted another for money because they have threatened to kill those that have been kidnapped or they've threatened to, to blackmail you or a number of different things. Okay? But in the Bible, the word had a different meaning. And Peter uses the word for ransom, and he talks about it here for redemption. He used the word redemption. And the use of that word was different for for the ones he was writing to. In ancient times, it really hasn't changed a great deal, but in ancient times, wars were frequent city-states and tribes that would war against each other. And conquering nations would take uh, prisoners, would take soldiers and sailors' prisoners, and they would hold them for ransom. Next slide. So it was sort of a, a kidnapping, but more or less it was what happened when there were battles and wars. And so prisoners could be bought back by agreeing to the terms of the conquering army or the ruling armies. You got a general that's been... Uh, taken prisoner and you want him back you pay whatever you whatever the army asks conquering army asks to be paid for not only that but servants and slaves could also be freed by paying a ransom set by owners and that continues for a number continue for a number of years now Let's think about it this way. You may not, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, this is what it means. We're in the, we're coming up on the free agency period of baseball players. It begins with Ernest in the book, of, in, excuse me, in the month of August. And so baseball players, and many of them, if not all of them, are wealthy, some of them super wealthy. But if they play out their contracts and they want to go to free agency, some other team can pick them up. But what do they have to do? They have to buy out their contracts, they have to ransom them. And if they don't, they may never play ball again. Now, this applies baseball, applies in football, basketball, and many other sports. So here's the implication this is what Peter was saying our sin has reduced us to slavery. Now you are sitting here this morning and saying no, I'm not a slave. Yes you are. I am too. We are slaves to sin. Bible's very clear. We're slaves to sin. Sin enslaves us. Not only that, but the second thing is we can't liberate ourselves from the enslavement. There's nothing we can do. We are Helpless. He talks in verse 18, he talks about aimless conduct. That's the word futile, it's the Old Testament word, vain. So, in our vanity, we think, oh, yes, there is something we can do. No, no, there's not. We're lost. That's the reason the Bible uses the word lost in our sins. Now, let me give you another example, another illustration. I play golf, poorly, very poorly. And Craig has endeavored to get uh, Vance and I back into playing golf. Craig is a a very gifted golfer. Vance is much better than I am, so you know where I stand. And I'm also older now, so many, many years ago, all that rotation and so forth, you know, that was important. Now I don't rotate as much. And why don't I rotate as much? I'm what? I'm old, yeah. But that's another word. Stiff. Let's not say old. Let's say stiff. Well, sometimes, and I. and one example would be Lee Trevino. There, some of you may remember him. Some of you may not. But anyway, he played golf with Jack Nicklaus. 40, 50 years ago. Trevino learned to play golf without any without any lessons. And his swing showed it. He looked, I look something like Trevino. You lift up the ball, you turn, you lift it up here, you got this going, it's moving about 400 place, different places, and you swing. Well, that's the way Trevino did it. Now Trevino was much better at it, obviously, than I am. He won a number of tournaments, a number of majors, and he won millions of dollars. But he never improved his swing beyond how he learned to play. He was imprisoned by his swing, and today his body suffers because of it. So we need someone to intervene, to teach us, to save us. We need someone to save us, to deliver us from the power and consequences of sin. We need someone to deliver us, to ransom us, to redeem us from the guilt and condemnation of death. The soul that sins, the book of Ezekiel says, it shall die. And so Peter's using the term here to, uh, to pay the price to free a prisoner or a slave, and it's implying that we, by implication, need to be ransomed. And in our case, both were true. We were both prisoners, prisoners of sin and slaves to sin. Now, thankfully, that's not all the story. We were prisoners of a just God who had every right to sentence us to eternal death and hell. God is not going to cry. He's not going to shudder. He's not going to become despondent when he, at the great white throne, judgment says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the devil's hell. He's not going to be indifferent, but he's not going to change what the word says. We're prisoners of a just God. He has every right to sentence us to eternal death and hell because we are sinners and, in many cases, unrepentant sinners. We're slaves to unrighteousness. We violated God's good and his righteous, holy Law. Next slide, if you would. Thankfully, Jesus enters the picture. And Jesus enters the picture because God the Father loved us. And God the Son loves us and his Father. He provide, provided the ransom that was necessary to liberate us from the power of sl- and slavery of sin. He provided his blood. That talks about his blood here in just a moment in these verses. And he removed that stain and the, the, uh, the horrible situation of being in a prison of judgment and divine hell. So for the next few moments here this morning... I want us to think about this question. What were we redeemed from? Well, that's simple, preacher. We're redeemed from our sin. Well, yeah. So that leads to the second question. Do you really understand the significance of your redemption? Do you really understand what state we were in before Christ came to redeem us? Because it's important to understand that. The Bible teaches, and we know that we were sinners and that sinners will bring God's judgment. God's judgment fell on the Garden of Eden. God's judgment fell on Judas. And God's judgment fell on many, many people throughout the Word of God. In fact, we were, the book of Ephesians says, we were slaves to sin. We were without hope in the world. And we were awaiting, we are awaiting the impartial judgment of God. Now, we don't think about that, but we are. And the Bible is very clear. Our sin, the book of Romans says, pays pays a wage, and that wage is death. People die because they're sinners. In the day that you sin, in the day that you eat of the fruit, God told Adam and Eve, you will, and he uses this word in the Hebrew, you will surely die not maybe not i'm going to grade on a curve, and you're going to be able to get in in the day that you break my law you will surely die if we die in our sin without the ransom of jesus christ without the redemption of jesus christ then that means our sins are not forgiven We have not appropriated the grace, mercy, and love of God in our lives. That will change us. Not leave us like we are, but that will change us. And that's where the fear comes in. We talked about that at the beginning of the message. James 2. The epistle just before 1 Peter, James wrote this. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Talked about this. Talk about it on Sunday night as we are preparing to go through the book of Exodus. And I reminded you that there are more to the laws of God than just the Ten Commandments. There are 613 or so laws in the Mosaic Law. The vast majority of them are ceremonial. And we have been removed from the ceremonial implications of the law. But 273 of them are spiritual. And we have not been removed from the spiritual implications of the law. So whoever keeps the whole law. Now James is a half-brother of Jesus. He was a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. In Acts 20, Paul is preaching to a group of Ephesian elders, and he there says, he reminds them, you are to present the ransom, the redeemer, to the church of the living God. So we as slaves of sin and prisoners to the justice of God have been set free. And this is the glory and reality of our redemption. Jesus did provide the ransom price for our sin. What are we redeemed from? The wrath of God. Yes, our sin, but our sin brings about the wrath of God. So Jesus had to intervene. And here's the thing. Notice what it says here. Here we go. Here's a point. God sent us, sentences us impartially because we are all sinners. And here's the takeaway. A ransom price must be paid to God so his justice must be satisfied in a manner which he himself has determined is acceptable to him. To him. We do not get to pick and choose how we settle our sinful account before God the Father. That has been done in Jesus Christ. That was settled At Calvary. Settled for you. Settled for me. At Calvary. It is not going to be aborted. Because we think that we have lived a life that is good enough to go to heaven. Nope. If we cannot present before God's judgment throne the person of Jesus Christ, our sins are not forgiven. The Bible does not teach a universality of Jesus' death on the cross that everyone will be saved. Peter is not writing to everyone in the Roman Empire. He is writing to a group of pilgrims that have been scattered abroad, believers Paul does not write to many lost people. Now, he does cover some of their lostness in a number of passages, but he primarily writes to churches because that's where believers should be. Now, I want to cover lust. The three things that we will see here, and I won't be able to finish this this morning, so I encourage you to come back. But in these passages that we've looked at and in your hearing this morning, Peter provides three insights into the condition of the unredeemed. First of all, he teaches believers to gird up their minds, and obviously the unredeemed can't do that. He challenges believers, don't be conformed to the form of lust, and this is an indication that... The unredeemed do conform to lust. Secondly, he says, don't do this in your ignorance to believers. So this leads us to understand that the unredeemed live in spiritual ignorance. And thirdly, in verse 18, he says, you are to live your futile lives. Beware how you live your life and make sure that it's not futile. Make sure that it's not aimless. Make sure that it's not vain. It's to be humble. In fact, as we move through this uh, this, uh, book, we'll see where he talks about humility. The very first thing, we'll cover this and we'll close. We are enslaved to lust. Turn with me to James chapter 1. So you just turn back a book. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, by his own lusts and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is... When it is mature, when it's full grown, when it takes control of our lives, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, James says. My beloved brother. So there's a lot of deception. And James says, when we're tempted, we're carried away and lost. Now the word that's used here... And the book of James, and also when he talks about it in, um, uh, in the passages at, uh, in verse 14, the formal lust, when he talks about that, it means to long for, that it, for what is forbidden. Now bear with me here, because it's more than just thinking about adultery or thinking about fornication. all that's, that's, that's the contemporary thinking. But the biblical term is not just that It's longing for what for what is forbidden, so yes, that could be another man or another woman, but it could be drugs. It could be something that we are addicted to. It could be gambling, it could be alcohol, it could be another that. We lust after something. That controls us. Now, we don't think it controls us, but it does. It's a desire, especially in a sinful manner. It moves us to covet. To want something somebody else has that is not mine. now here's the thing it is generally associated with having power over people or control over people that's biblical lust do you desire to have power over people to have control over people that's biblical lust now that's differentiated look at verse 12 Verse 12 of 1 Peter says, To them it was revealed, that not to themselves, talking about the prophets of old, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. The word desire there is the positive implication of the word lust. Now this is talking about holy angels. We covered this a few weeks ago. So James draws excuse me, Peter draws a contrast. The angels desire the good things of God, and sinners desire the former lusts, the evil things. That's why he writes, Be holy. Lust entices. It results in sin. And it will ultimately Kill us. Sin soils the mind. It depreciates our capacity to think rationally. And we become emotional and we say ignorant things like we don't need to follow the Lord in baptism. I hope that's not the situation with any of you this morning. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us that know him as Lord and Savior. And if you're here this morning and you don't, you can. It requires a simple humbling before him, before the mighty hand of God, Peter would write in first, in first Peter chapter 5, he says that we need to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God because God gives grace to the humble but resists the vain, the proud. I trust that's the situation with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning for the power of this passage of Scripture. We thank you for Reagan, for her asking for forgiveness of sins and then asking you by faith to come into her life. We thank you for her testimony. And I would to God that everyone here this morning would have a similar strong testimony in Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Edmund Clowney's commentary on First Peter, he has a grand illustration. About lust for power, and he says this: Chuck Colson, some of you recall him from the Watergate days. <coughs> he became a believer, strong, strong advocate for Christianity. Chuck Colson describes an interview on American television. Mike Wallace, you may, some of you may remember him. His son Chris Wallace now uh, is commentating. Mike Wallace was speaking with Yahil Deneur, a concentration camp survivor who testified against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. Eichmann was the mastermind for, to develop the, uh, the concentration camps. Wallace showed a film a clip from the 1961 trial of this Nazi architect of the Holocaust. Colson describes the scene as Deneur walked into the courtroom to come face-to-face with a man Who had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier? Deneur began to sob, and I quote Deneur began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pounded his gavel for order in the crowded courtroom. Was Deneur overcome by hatred, hard memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, As Deneur explained to Wallace, all at once he realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent many of his friends to their death. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. He said, I was afraid about myself, said Deneur. I saw that I am capable of doing this very thing. I'm exactly like him. Until we see ourselves in this manner, there remains no hope. But when we do see ourselves in this manner, there's the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing an invitation hymn this morning. We'll give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord as Savior, we can't save you, but we can with an open Bible take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and you can leave here with that assurance today. And you need that. Don't sit here and think, oh, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm going because hope is a vain plan. And if you're here today as a child of God and perhaps the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church, you know the Lord as your Savior, perhaps you need to follow Him in believers' baptism. We've watched this young lady this morning. We've had opportunity to do that for the past few months with a number of our children. So we encourage you to be obedient. And the church will rejoice with that. As a child of God, we are to live our lives based upon the beauty of our Redeemer. Knowing that one day We will live with him. And I pray that that is your comfort, your consolation this morning. What number, Brother Mike? 345, 345, the Lord's.